Carter Report presents worship from the Community Adventist Fellowship in Glendale, California. A special welcome to all of our viewers in North America and our new friends and churches in Russia. Today you'll enjoy uplifting music and the preaching of the everlasting gospel by pastor, teacher, and evangelist John Carter. Please get your Bible and study the Word of God with us today. Thank you for joining us for Worship and Praise. Daniel 11 and verse 1 and 2. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. This is Gabriel talking. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everything against the kingdom of Greece. Now, Stephen, we're going to push into 50 minutes, 50 verses, thereabouts, every verse chocked full with information. What does Daniel 11 talk about? Firstly, let me tell you what it talks about. In the prophecies of Daniel, you have Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8 and 9, and then you have Daniel 11, which largely is not symbolic, but it is the history of the Ptolemies and the Seleucid kings, the kings of the south, that's the Ptolemies in Egypt, and the kings of the north in Syria, in their battles. And then it moves to a larger scene and introduces the power of pagan Rome. And then it, it goes even further. Listen carefully. Then it brings in the church of the dark ages. Now listen to this. This chapter predicted the collapse of communism. I have taught this chapter now for 30 years. 30 years ago when I was a boy out of college, I confidently predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union and the emergence of a great church-state organization that would come upon the world scene and that would flood over the world and that would bring the church to its greatest test. If my understanding of this prophecy is correct, we are living in the time just before the final test. Now to get to those verses, you've got to give me today your hearts and your minds, and particularly your minds, if you don't mind. It says there are going to be three kings. Let me tell you who they were. This was written before it happened. The first was Cambyses the second. The second was the false Smyrtus. These are Persian kings. The third is Darius the first. And the fourth is the great Xerxes the first, who made war against Greece. The Bible says he would stir up his realm against the king of Grecia, and he was defeated in the year 480 B.C. But notice verse 3, and some of you will catch on quickly now. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, 
because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now who is that? Come on. This is Alexander the Great. And so, so far we're going through the same material that we noticed in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8. You say, who cares? Who cares? Let me tell you, God cares. Because these things were written hundreds of years before Alexander was born, written before the days of Xerxes the Great, and if what I'm telling you is the truth, then it tells me that every person is known by the great God of heaven. Now, let me tell you this. People get upset because things don't go the way they think they ought to go. You know what a great consolation to me is? The truth that there's a God of heaven and he knows everything about everyone and he will have the last say in the affairs of men. He knew all about Xerxes. I don't need to worry about Xerxes. I don't need to worry about anything that has got people concerned because of my philosophy that says life has got meaning because there's a God in heaven. Now, read on further. We get some more history. Now, verse 5, the king of the south will become strong. Now, this is the king of Egypt. And one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After the division of the Grecian Empire, the kingdom of Alexander, into four parts, after this, it was divided into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Syria and the kingdom of Egypt. And these verses now discuss the wars between Egypt and Syria. Verse 6, after some years they will become allies. That's the king of Egypt and the king of Syria. The daughter of the king of the south, that was Ptolemy, will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days she will be handed over, together with her royal escort, and her father, and the one who supported her. Now, you say, what on earth is this talking about? Let me tell you. You have the king of the north in Syria, and the king of the south in Egypt, and these kings had been fighting, and therefore these men said, let us make a bargain so that we will stop our fighting, and as a part of the bargain, Ptolemy in Egypt gave his daughter, whose name was Berenice, and he gave her to the king of the north, the king of Syria, whose name was uh, Antiochus. And Berenice, the uh, history tells me, went up there, but before she could become the queen, the king of the north had to get rid of his first wife, whose name was Laodice. She had children. And the king of the north not only had to get rid of his wife Laodice, but he had to disinherit his children. Now the Bible says that the king of the south would give his daughter, but she would not have a very happy end, and she would be given up, and all the people who came with her. This, my friend, was written hundreds of years before Berenice was born. And so she went up to the king of the north, and the king of the north got rid of Laodice and married Berenice and disinherited his children. But as the years rolled by, something amazing happened. After the death of Ptolemy down in Egypt, 
the king of the north got tired of Berenice. And so he divorced Berenice and he took back Laodice. And when Laodicea came back on the throne to show her gratitude, she poisoned her husband. <laughs> she poisoned Antiochus. And then she had Berenice assassinated. This is what you're reading about here. The Bible told the story of the king of the south, Ptolemy and Antiochus and Laodice and Berenice and all of these stories and how Berenice would be put to death before she was born. You know, it's all written down before it happens. Did you know everything about you, brother? Everything about you, sister, is known by the God of heaven. It's all written down. Now a person comes and says, but how do you relate that to the situation in Los Angeles? How do you relate that to my own lifestyle? How do you relate that to my problems? I will tell you, my friend, if these verses are true and if history is true, here is outstanding evidence that there is a God in heaven. How could this book otherwise be written? Either we are going to take God seriously, or let's forget about him. Either we're going to take the Bible seriously, or we will not take anything seriously, my friend. And so here we have the stories of the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. I'm going to go through these verses so fast now because there's so history and so much history in it. And I just don't want to give you too much. I don't want to give you indigestion. Verse 7. One of, this is a, uh, this as a, uh, as a conciliatory step. Okay. Verse 7. One from her family line will arise to take her place. That was the king of the south. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortresses. There was a war then, a war of revenge. You see, when people don't get thing, things their own way in this world, there's always revenge. Let me tell you, revenge is never the solution to sin. If somebody does something rotten to you and tries to do you in, you won't help your cause or help your stomach ulcers if you set out in revenge. And this is the story here of revenge. Uh, verse 8 says, He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold, carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortresses, fighting and fighting and fighting between the king of the north and the king of the south, because they came from a different country. Is anything really new? Do you know why people fight among themselves? Do you know why the king of the north fights the king of the south in Los Angeles? you know why? Because they're not walking in the ways of God. This is why. The only thing that can bring peace to troubled hearts is when a person recognizes that he is a child of God and everybody else in the world is a child of God too. You can't love your neighbor until you love God. And no man will respect his neighbor or his property until he fears God. Verse 11, then the king of the south will march out in a rage. What's new? Fight against the king of the north who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. 
When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride. I've won the battle and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. He who shouts in a carnal battle that he's won it, better be careful. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south, the Egyptians. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. We think that was Gezer. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. And rather than take hours to tell you historically how the verses were fulfilled, let me sum it up by saying this is a prophecy written hundreds of years before which was fulfilled in this incessant warfare between the king of the south in Egypt and the king of the north in Syria. But now another great power comes on the world scene and we shall pass to him. Verse 16. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. Now, I know this is causing you to think today. And most folks don't come to church to think. I know. But I want you to think about this. After Babylon came Medo-Persia, came Greece, and then you have the war of the descendants of Alexander the Great, the kings of the north and the kings of the south, the Seleucid kings in Syria and the Ptolemies in Egypt. But what other power would you expect now to come upon the world scene that invades the promised land and does according to his will? Come on, let's have it. Mm. And so now we pass to a, now, a, a new power on the world scene, and this is the power of Rome. And here we have a description of Julius Caesar. Verse 17, he will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Another translation says they will give to him the daughter of women, corrupting her, but she shall not stand for him, and he shall be overthrown. Does anybody have an inkling what this could be talking about? That there comes upon the world scene a mighty general, and he goes down into the land of Egypt, because he wants to be the king of the world. And there is given to him, as it says quaintly in the King James Version, the daughter of women corrupting her, but she shall not stand for him. Um, what would you think about this? Does anybody know any Roman history? Mm -hmm. Many would think that this is a description of the relationship between Caesar and Cleopatra. But as you know, Cleopatra turned away from him. And the end result of that union was futility. Verse 18 says, Then he will turn his attention to the coastland and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. After this, he will turn back towards the fortress of his own country 
and will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Does anybody know what happened to Julius Caesar after he came back, all his great conquests? He was assassinated. The Bible says a commander will turn the battle against him, one of his own men. History tells us when Julius Caesar was standing on the pinnacle of power when he had conquered the whole wide world, he came back to the security and the safety of the Senate. And Brutus and some other assassins came to him and murdered him. And the Bible says he would turn his face to his own land and he would stumble and he would not be found. Thus was the end of Julius Caesar. Somebody tell me who is a student of history, and I know you all are, who was the Caesar who came after Julius Caesar? Let me read the verse. Let me read the verse, and you'll know of whom it is speaking. Verse 20. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. The Bible says at this time in the days of the Roman Empire there would come another man. And this man would be noted as a great raiser of taxes. And the Bible tells me in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 that in the days of Caesar Augustus there went forth a decree that all the world should be taxed. Can you see what the Bible is doing? In Daniel chapter 2, it simply talks about, talks about legs of iron when it talks about Rome. In Daniel 7, it gives a little more. In Daniel 8, it gives a little more. But in Daniel 11, it even starts to talk about the Caesars and describes their most conspicuous characteristics. But the Bible says, after a few days, he will be destroyed, but not in the heat of battle. He lived for 18 years after the decree to, to tax the whole wide world. And then I'm told by the historians, he did not die in the passion or the heat of battle, but he died peacefully in bed. He was one of the few. But Jesus, of course, was born in the days of Caesar Augustus, the raiser of taxes. And then after Caesar Augustus, who came on the world scene? Does anybody know? Mm-hmm. This is testing you, isn't it? Uh, verse 21. This is talking about the man who came after the tax collector. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person or a vile person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. The Bible says that the man who came after the tax collector would be a person without any scruples at all. Does anybody know from history who this man was? Because I know who he was. Does anybody know? The contemptible person in history is called Tiberius Caesar. Uh, the historian tells me that uh, Tiberius was only drunk once in his life. Only once in his life. That was all the time. Uh, he wrote this letter to the Senate, this contemptible person. What shall I write to you, conscript fathers? Or what I shall not write? Or why I should write at all? May the gods and goddesses plague me more than I feel daily they are doing if I can tell. 
And so he was the man who ruled the whole wide world, who came after the great Caesar Augustus. And the Bible says he was a vile and a contemptible person. Notice verse 21, 22. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. This verse could be translated better. The Hebrew says, and also the prince of the covenant. Has anybody here today any idea who the prince of the covenant was who was swept away in the days of Tiberius Caesar? Come on, come now. Do we not know this? In Daniel chapter 9, we're told about the prince of the covenant who would be put to death. Here we are told in Holy Scripture, uh, when he would be put to death in the reign of this contemptible person who came after the tax collector. And Jesus Christ was put to death in the days of Tiberius Caesar. Let me read you a statement from uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian. He says, Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea, in the reign of Tiberius. Now, I understand that we are doing some thinking today, but let me tell you, as far as I am concerned, this gives me a reason why I can have hope, because it tells me that there must be an almighty God, if he could describe the affairs of the human race with such precision hundreds, even thousands of years before these events took place. If this is true, then the book that you hold in your hands is nothing less than the Word of God. And if it is the Word of God, then there is a holy God in heaven. There is a Creator, and He knows everything there is to know about you, and everything there is to know about me, and He is in charge. You hear this? Mmm, boy. Yeah. Now, let me read on, give you a little more. Read on a little more. Verse 23, after coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people he will rise to power. This is talking about the agreement that he made with the Jews, and how the Romans with only a few people became the people of the world. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. This talks about how the great Roman Empire, through the Roman Caesars and through the Senate, through intrigue and through duplicity and through force of arms, became the greatest power in the world. Verse 25, with a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south, Egypt. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army that he'll not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to one another. Sounds like politics today. Mm -hmm. Do you think today that people have changed? Do you think today that most people, I ask you, are interested in what is truth? 
Most people, because they do not believe that there is a God in heaven, are only interested in what is good for them and political expediency. I want to tell you today the most important thing in the world is truth and the pursuit of truth and obedience to truth. But these two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table, lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north, now this is Rome, will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and return to his own country. This describes now the war of Rome against the children of God. He takes action against the people of the holy covenant and the holy covenant is the truth of the gospel. Verse 29 and onwards, at the appointed time he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. This now describes the fall of Rome. Ships of the western coastlands, the Vandals, will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Uh, these verses were literally fulfilled after Rome had done his greatest, her, her greatest work, or its greatest work, because it was a, a terrible power. After doing its greatest work, the Roman Empire, because of inner corruption, started to fall apart. And the Bible says in the King James versions, the ships of Kittim, which means the area which is west of Cyprus. And this Bible says here, ships of the western coastlands will oppose him. That's talking about the Vandals. He will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Now we're getting on to territory which is going to hold your attention even if you've been getting a little sleepy up to now. There's plenty more of that. Listen to me. The Bible says that the ships would come against him, the vandals came against Rome, and Rome was pillaged. But the Bible says Rome would come back and make an alliance with those who forsook the Holy Covenant. Who forsook the Holy Covenant? Who forsook the Holy Covenant? In the days of the collapse of the Roman Empire, who forsook the Holy Covenant? The church. The institutionalized church. The Bible says in other passages that there would come a great falling away from the truth. And when the church fell away from the truth, the power of the Caesars came to those who'd fallen away from the truth. And an unholy alliance planned in hell was signed between the two kings, the king of religion and the king of the Roman Empire. And thus came into being the great apostasy, the Antichrist, the church of the Dark Ages, which is described in these powerful verses. Read on. Mm -hmm. Now we've survived successfully the king of the north and the king of the south. Got through that without putting you all asleep. Okay, now we describe here the verses of Antichrist. Verse 31, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. They will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Have you heard verses like these before? Yeah, of course you have. Daniel chapter 8, 
Matthew 24, it talks about the abomination that causes desolation and this power does away with the daily sacrifice. Remember, what, remember when I spoke in Daniel 8? I spoke about the daily, the tamed, that represents the ritual and the ceremonies of the Hebrew sanctuary. In the sanctuary, listen to it again. You say this is heavy, then get with it. Get with it, my friend. In the sanctuary there was a bleeding lamb. There was a bleeding lamb because there was a broken law. And in the sanctuary there was a priest. And when the Bible says that this amalgamation of the two kings, the king of religion and the king of Rome takes place, the sanctuary is desecrated, the law of God is cast to the ground, the holy seventh day Sabbath is changed by the church. Instead of the one high priest in heaven, there are a million priests on this earth. And there is a priest over there sitting on the throne of the Caesars who says, We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. We have the ability to forgive your sins. And so the truth of the gospel is taken away, the truth of the cross is cast to the ground, there is only one sacrifice, and that is the sacrifice of the cross. But the Bible says, they set up the abomination that causes desolation. It doesn't look an abomination. I've gone along on many occasions. I've sat there. I've seen the glory. I've heard the singing of angelic choirs, as Beverly said when we went along to Rome and sat there, she said, if it's an abomination, it's a beautiful abomination. Because of the pomp, because of the glory, if I were not what I am, I would belong to that system, but for God. Because it is so powerful. It is so overwhelming. And without God, the human heart desires all of that pomp and that ceremony. The Bible says it's the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Glory, hallelujah. Even when things have been the worst, I tell you, even when apostasy has been almost universal, God has always had his people. Hear this? God has always had his people who have firmly resisted apostasy and iniquity. Listen to me and let this get into your mind, I'm telling you today. Christianity is not merely a passive religion, as Beverly said today. Christianity often calls upon us to resist evil. It has been said that evil prospers because good men remain silent. Evil prospers because people are spiritual cowards in the time of crisis. God's people who count for something will stand for the truth and they will resist evil. The Bible says the people who know their God will be strong and resist him. There comes a time when we need to resist evil. Verse 33, those who are wise will instruct many. 
Though for a time they will fall by the sword, or be burned, or captured, or plundered, this is not talking about pagan Rome. This is talking about the medieval church. This is talking about the church that arose on the kingdom of the Caesars and that sits on the throne of the Caesars. The Bible says this religious power would put people to death with the sword. It would burn them. It would capture them. It would plunder them. I want to read you a story. I read this out of the man's uh, uh, from a man whom I have nothing but admiration, HMS Richards. I read from his book, Feed My Sheep. Uh, I believe that he was the, the greatest preacher that the Adventist church has ever produced, a great preacher of righteousness by faith, a man who knew Christ. I listened recently to his He's been dead now for a number of years, but I listened to his series on Revelation. I've never heard so much Christ in preaching. That's why the voice of prophecy was blessed by God. This is the story of Claverhouse. In that meeting, I told how one of the preachers was hiding in a cave, and the Scottish believers were sending food to him by a boy, seven or eight years old, because he wouldn't attract attention as he went out over the moss hags. At last he was detected and Claverhouse, at the head of his dragoon, called little Jamie. This is talking about the Scotch Christians, those men who stood for the faith of God. I wish I'd been one of them. The Covenanteers who opened their veins, pricked their arteries, took out the blood and signed the covenant with their own blood, that they'd be true to God. That takes intestinal fortitude. You know the problem with Christianity and your Christianity and my Christianity on the whole? It's insipid. Most Christians today stand for nothing and fall for anything. Stand for nothing and fall for anything. Come to church when it's a nice day. Keep the Sabbath when it's a nice day. Otherwise they just do anything on the Sabbath. It means nothing to them. The people who know that God will be strong and do exploits the people whom God will take home to glory in the last great conflict are going to be men and women with something in their backbones. At last he was detected in Claverhouse at the head of his dragoon called little Jamie. We know where you've been, Jamie. Tell us where he is and take us to him, they demanded. He said, I canna, I canna. Come on now, tell us or we'll kill you. I canna. That's all Scottish backbone, I'll tell you. Finally, Claverhouse himself grabbed the boy by the scruff of his neck, pushed his horse to the edge of the cliff, and held the boy out over the rocks. Now he said, Jamie, tell us where he is and take us to him or I'll drop you. The little boy twisted around, looked up at him and said, I cannot. I'll drop you and it's 100 feet down, said Claverhouse. Then the little fellow still looking at him with a tear in the corner of his eye, said, I cannot and I will not. His mother had told him not to tell. My friends, that's what we need. Backbone like that. I cannot and I will not. Then he finished his sentence by saying, it's not as deep as hell. 
100 feet down, but not as deep as hell. And that's good Scottish doctrine too. That's why I am proud of my Protestant background. That's why I'm glad that I stand in the line of people who were prepared to say, I cannot and I will not. That's what we need today. More reliance upon God and less reliance upon institutions. Verse 34, when they fall, they will receive a little help. And many who are not sincere will join them. That's always been true. You have people join the church because they think they're going to get something out of it. Some of the wise will stumble. That's true so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. So these verses graphically describe the church of the dark ages, describes the people of God who said, I cannot and I will not, and I will be true to my Christ if it costs me my life. Now these verses describe the last attack by the Antichrist upon the church that's still to come. Now let me make this plain to you because my gospel that I preach is not a popular gospel. I do not believe in the doctrine that says follow Christ and you're going to get a Rolls Royce. Don't believe in that. That doctrine is taught by charlatans who are simply trying to suck money out of poor people. I don't believe that, I despise it. The Bible says that the path of the true church is a path that goes through the wilderness of suffering and persecution. That's the history of the true church. The Bible says all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This has always been true at the church. Whenever we preach the truth of God, there is opposition. I don't say this to get you sympathy because I don't need it. I need your support so we can preach the word, but whenever we preach the word and there's opposition, we get criticized by people in high offices in the church who apparently have never read the Bible. They've read the church manual, but apparently they've never read the Bible. I had a man come to one of my colleagues this week and say, oh, we're so concerned all the trouble you caused in Kiev. We knew he'd do it. Then the man said, you may have won the battle, but you haven't won the war yet. What's wrong with these people? If the man who said that is listening, I've got a message to you. Go and read your Bible. Go and read what happened when the apostles preached. Go and read and see what happened when Jesus preached. Go and read Daniel 11 and wonder why nothing happens when you preach. You know why? Because when the Word of God is preached and we should avoid controversy and we should avoid trouble and persecution, I do not want to be a martyr. But I want to tell you folks something, whenever the word of God is preached with power, there's going to be opposition. It happened in Kiev and people say you won the battle. We never won any battle. God won the battle. Amen. 
Be careful, my brother. Be careful what you say because God may hear what you're saying and be displeased with you. We never won the battle. God won the battle. When we went to Africa <laughs> and we had the biggest crowds in the history of that nation and then after the word was preached there was an outcry from that same church that is mentioned here in the Bible. People said, why is he doing this? Don't they know? Why don't they read? Are they blind? I think so. We should do everything we can to have peace with all men, but by the grace of God we need to preach the word and not be afraid of the consequences. Amen. Mm -hmm. The Bible says here that whenever there is a true witness to the gospel, there'll be opposition. Another cleric said, <laughs> he needs to learn to preach like I do. But if I did, I'd have the same results that he has. That's zero. He said, when I preach, nobody is ever upset. I'm sure they're not, because he's got nothing to say. Except quote from the church manual. Hmm. But you've got nothing to say and nothing happens, my friend. We need to be faithful to Christ. Faithful to the gospel. Not worry about our precious little reputations of whether we're going to be elected at the next big church council. Who cares? Who cares? You want to know the highest position in the church? Ready for it? Highest position in the church is a faithful preacher who stands in front of a congregation and says, hear the word of God. You say, but that's not true. The church manual doesn't say it. Well, I don't care. The Bible says it. 1 Corinthians 12 says it, that the most important uh, position in the church is the prophetic gift. And when a man stands in front of a congregation and preaches the word of God with the spirit of God and preaches the true gospel, the Bible says that is the gift of God of prophetic utterance. Did you know that? That's new to you? You better read 1 Corinthians 12, brother. You better read 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 4 because if you don't know that, that's a truth you need to learn. Don't seek, HMS Richards said, any position in Washington. He said, don't go to Washington, don't try to get elected, don't take a lesser job. Preach the word. You see? And when you preach that word, There'll be problems on occasions, but we are called not to please men, but we are called to please God. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sorry sometimes when I get people upset with me, but I really think that's because they've got the problem. God never called us to be diplomats. God called us to be honest. Verse 36, the king will do as he pleases. This is the Antichrist. He will exalt him himself and magnify himself above every god, will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He'll be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. This is talking about the great coalition of church and state in the last days. This is the king who arose on the ruins of the Roman Empire and who has made such statements as, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. This is the last great religious uh, amalgamation. 
amalgamation with heathenism, paganism. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god but will exalt himself above them all. He doesn't care about the one desired by women. Who was that? That was Jesus. Jesus, every mother wanted to have as her son the Messiah. The Bible says he won't take any regard for the gods of his fathers. Why not? Because wherever that church goes, he takes over the gods of those nations and transforms them into Christian gods. He has no regard for those gods because he puts himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costliest gifts. What is it talking about? Here is a new god. I will tell you what the god is. It is the little wafer god. When the priest says, this is my body, he believes that the bread becomes God. By the doctrine of transubstantiation, and if you go to countries where that power is the state religion, as they carry the host down the street, I've been there, but I have never knelt, God help me. I've seen them all fall on their knees and worship the little wafer God carried down the streets. That's a God whom his fathers didn't know. The God who was honored with gold and precious stones. Verse 39, he will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign God and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land for a price. That's what he did in the dark ages. He even sold England. Even sold England to the highest bidder. Now, I'm going to give you something which is pretty complex, difficult to understand, but you can understand it. At the time of the end, we believe that started in 1798, the king of the south will engage him in a battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. Listen very carefully. Now, please listen. These verses are incomprehensible to millions. In the New Testament, terms that are used in the Old Testament, listen carefully, terms that are used in the Old Testament for entities and peoples are spiritualized. Israel in the Old Testament becomes what in the New Testament? Spiritual Israel. Oh, who, Helen? Who, who is Israel? Us, the church of God. The Bible says, if you belong to Christ in Galatians, then are you Abraham's seed. So you and I are Abraham's seed, you see? And you and I are brothers and sisters, you see? And so Israel in the new covenant setting becomes the church. The king of the north back in those times was Rome or Babylon. And the king of the north today is the great system of, of Babylon that came down like a wolf on the fold upon the Jews from the north in the Old Testament. The king of the south is Egypt. But in the New Testament setting, listen carefully, the king of the south is spiritual Egypt. Israel is spiritual Israel. That's why we sing the hymn, O Zion, haste thy mission high fulfilling. When you sing that song, O Zion, haste, you're not singing about Israel or, or, or literal Jerusalem. 
this is tremendously important. This is a truth the dispensationalists have got no idea about. In the New Testament, Israel doesn't represent Palestine. It represents the people of God. The king of the south is spiritual Egypt. Now, what is spiritual Egypt? <laughs> How do you press all this in? What is spiritual Egypt? Spiritual Egypt, no, it's not. Spiritual Egypt, listen carefully. Egypt was the power that said, I do not know Jehovah. I won't let the people of God go. In fact, Ellen White says in the book, Great Controversy, that Egypt represents atheism. The power that said, I do not believe in God. I will not bow down to God. I believe in great monuments and great power, and I will not let the people of God go. Spiritual Egypt today represents atheism. And the Bible says at the time of the end, 1798, atheism would push against him. And in 1798, General Berthier took the pontiff prisoner after the French Revolution. The French Revolution was spiritual Egypt. That's in Revelation 11. The French Revolution was atheism. Curse the wretch, curse the wretch, they said about Christ. The French legislature was the only parliament in the history of the world that said there is no God. They abolished God at the time of the end in 1798. Atheism through the French Revolution pressed against the great church of the Dark Ages, and the church of the Dark Ages went down for a while. And then from the French Revolution came Marxism, and from Marxism came Communism. And the Bible says there would come in the last days a great clash of the titans. Communism versus the Church of the Dark Ages, still here today and doing well. Now notice what happens. Verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. That happened. And the king of the north, the Antichrist, will storm against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries, sweep through them like a flood. These verses I have used to predict the overthrow of atheism by the power of the great power of Rome. Thirty years ago I taught on the basis of these verses that communism would collapse and there would come a great religious dictatorship in the world. I can still remember people laughing at me for saying, communism's going to go down. Now if you want an excellent book on this, you can go and get, it's hard to get, it's out of print. Uh, the Greatest of the Prophets by George McCready Price. Spoke about these things years ago. I wish I could spend more time with you on these things. Verse 41, the Antichrist, he will also invade the beautiful land. That's the church. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. They were once the enemies of the people of God who come over and joined the people of God. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. Spiritual Egypt. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Nubians in submission. 
And so the Bible says, in the last days, like a mighty overflowing flood, the Antichrist, the King of the North, the great amalgamation of apostasy, floods over the world, and the world goes down before him. Nobody stands except our little remnant. We're living in the days when this prophecy is being fulfilled, when the great power of atheism has collapsed in the world, and atheism collapsed to make way for the coming of the church of the dark ages. That's the time in which we're living in the toes of time. Verse 44, but reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he, he will set out in great rage to destroy and annihilate many. Uh, we're told in Scripture that the throne of God is in the north and that the message of Revelation 7, the sealing message, comes from the east. This refers to the last great proclamation of the gospel. And when the reports from the east and the north go forth with great power, when the gospel is preached, the Antichrist is enraged and goes forth to destroy the preachers of the gospel. The word annihilate many is in the Hebrew word an expression that says to place under a ban or a boycott, which is Revelation 13. Revelation 13 feeds on these verses. This is a picture of the last great conflict between truth and error. And then verse 45 says, He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. That's the church. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. The Bible says, as a part of the great climax before the second coming, the great church of the dark ages gathers his power, and he comes against the glorious holy mountain. He comes against the church. But chapter 12 and verse 1 says, At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince who stands for the children of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone that shall be found written in the book. The Bible tells me in the last great conflict, when Antichrist rises to destroy the church, Michael stands up in splendor and lays him low. Thus, the panorama of Holy Scripture. These great themes are not for anemic souls. These are the greatest and the grandest themes of Scripture. There you have the history of the world. Proof that there's a God, there's meaning to life. There you have the story of the Christian church suffering and torn and bleeding. There you have the picture of the great apostasy, a counterfeit, a counterfeit Christ, a counterfeit cross, a counterfeit lamb, a counterfeit law, joined to the state, persecuting. But the Bible says in the last great conflict, he comes to his end, no one helps him. Because Michael stands up and delivers his people. And what should we be? Listen to me. You and I need to be students of the word. You and I need to bring our Bibles to church. 
You and I ought to read our Bibles every day. If we don't do that, we are not going to make it. Alan White said, only those who fortify their minds with the truths of God's Word will stand through the last great conflict. That is why I urge you, I beg you in God's name, arouse yourself and read your Bible. You say, but I can't. It is because you're lazy. It is because you are not trying. Read the Bible. Read the Word. Bring it to church. Put your faith in Christ. Be one of God's heroes. Be a strong person. Resist evil and love the truth. John Huss, the great Bohemian, Czechoslovakian reformer, before he was burnt at the stake, sent a message from his prison cell to his beloved Protestant believers back in Bohemia, he wrote the words, Believe the truth. Love the truth. Live the truth. I say to you in the name of God, Believe the truth. Love the truth. Live the truth. So help us God. Amen.